The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading wonderfully, friends. Hey, if we've yet to meet, my name is Nick. Welcome to 6 p.m. It's so good to see you all here. We're continuing our series in Titus. Come to this section on like the characteristics of eldership or overseers. When I first read it, I was like, this isn't particularly the inspiring or lovely message that I'd like to preach this Sunday. If you gave a preacher a choice of anything that they would like to preach, I doubt you're going to get a sermon on Titus 1, 5 to 9, because it's not very spectacular, it's not very empowering, it's not very inspiring, right? Fair enough. I'm also aware of the dynamic that I'm standing here as a leader, and I'm going to preach to you about leadership. And it kind of feels like I'm naked. I'm just going to be honest with you. You know, they say, like, picture the audience in their underwear for public speaking. It's this sense of just, like, you get to assess me and all of our pastors and all those who claim to be leaders within the church. And that's a good thing. But it's kind of scary. So, bless you. Go easy on me. It's going to be a great time. Anyways, I do think it's really important that we sit here. I think it's especially important in this day and age that we really, really think carefully about what does it mean to be a leader as a Christian? What does it mean for someone who, who seeks to represent God to live in this world? I think it's really important that we think about that today because I, I have a question of why do we see so many high-profile pastors and leaders falling into moral failure, into adultery, into affairs, into embezzlement and stealing and and all sorts of things that you would never expect of someone who claims to to represent God in the church. Why are these people falling into this place? Because it feels like left and right, if you follow anyone on Instagram, it just seems to be happening left here, there, there, there. And then a little less impressive and, you know, interesting than the, you know, the high-profile fallout is why are there so many pastors and leaders just falling into burnout? just like can't handle the pressure and the expectation that comes with leading in the church. And so they decide to just quit, go find a job that may be slightly related or completely unrelated simply because they can't do it anymore. I've got too many stories of friends who have been in that boat and too many stories and books that have been written all over the place because I do think we have a problem with leadership in the church. I think we've misunderstood what it truly means to be a Christian leader, and instead we've imported a whole host of other things that we want to define what it means to truly be a leader in the church, right? I think there's a few things, and I'd love to hear your ideas afterwards, but my concern primarily is that we've imported a worldly picture of leadership, we've brought it into the church, and we've sprinkled a little Jesus on it, so it sounds nice and Christian, but at the end of the day, we're still expecting results, we still want to see something impressive, 
We want to see numbers. We want to see a church that's managing to do something, that has influence, that's reaching out into the community. And you can point to stories and numbers. And those things tend to be the mark of a successful church. And then on the flip side, the local church that's just quietly plodding away in the corner of their local suburb, if they haven't got anything impressive and if their preacher is boring, that leader sucks. Tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) That tends to be our natural approach. I think we care more about metrics and numbers than we care about prayer. I think we think humans can accomplish more than they actually can, and we downgrade the, the role of God in the church. I think we elevate leaders too high, and so then they come crashing down when they can't meet our expectations. We give lip surface to humility. We think character matters to some extent. Like no one wants a pastor that's like obviously engaging in sin and stuff, right? But once you pass the bare minimum of character, it's like, well, now can you impress me? Could you be a dynamic preacher now? I heard that sermon last week. Use the same illustration the week before. Come on, come on, come on. There's, There's this expectation that we've put them up on a pedestal and they need to deliver. It's like a monkey that must perform for us. And that's not Christian leadership. I worry even more for the next generation in how much of our Christian content is coming to us from pastors and leaders and teachers and people who aren't even pastors but who want to present content on TikTok and Instagram because we get their perfectly curated content without the proximity of actually seeing who they are. We get to see what they think in a bubble from a distance without actually lining it up against their character and their integrity. And if that becomes our standard of what is good and true in the church, of course you're going to be disappointed with your local church leader like me because we don't have 10,000 followers and we haven't got a great Instagram algorithm and we haven't worked out how to snap your attention on TikTok. If we allow the world to dictate what our leadership is, I fear for the future of the church. Now, not a very exciting or empowering message, but it's important. So what's different about Christian leadership? What should it look like? Well, we're going to dig into Titus in a minute, but I would suggest that we need to look to Jesus. Jesus didn't abandon leadership, but he reimagined it. He reinvented it. We love a leader who can pull a crowd. Jesus ran away from crowds. (laughs) He he fled into obscurity. Often people be like, where'd Jesus go? He's just up a mountain praying because he thought that was the best use of his time. We, we love leaders who have influence and who have, who have platforms. And Jesus intentionally chose to set his focus on a small group of men and women so that he could love them intimately and closely and deeply and show them what it means to be the son of God, what it means to be a believer. Jesus put aside all expectations of any worldly success. Why? Because the culmination of his ministry, the reason he came into the world, was to get killed. If you looked at a leader and measured their leadership based on their outcome, Jesus is the worst leader of all time, right? Good job, dude. You met your KPI and you died on a Roman cross. It doesn't work. And yet, the leadership of Jesus transformed the world. You're sitting here in a church in Australia, Sydney, in 2023. Why? Because the unexpected, unimpressive leadership of Jesus is the way of the Almighty God. It's, it's, it's fun to be intrigued by an impressive teacher. It can be cool to have some great people that you listen to content online. And it's awesome if someone in your church has great gifts and we can all enjoy and bask in that. That's fantastic. 
But if that is the end point of what it means to be a leader, we have missed Jesus. And it's all just smokes and mirrors. And at the end of the day, there's no substance. So, not, essential, not, not inspiring, but maybe essential. We're, gonna, we're just going to look at what does it mean to be a Christian leader. Hopefully, you'll see that this doesn't just apply to leaders. This is actually for you because these characteristics we're going to look at really just resemble what, it, what Jesus embodied in his leadership. These aren't just like leader characteristics. These are Christian characteristics. So we'll consider leaders, but I want you to keep in the back of your mind as you read all of this, is this who I am? Do, do I live out this picture of faith? Is this the kind of character that I embody? Because we can throw stones at me and I'm ready to hear, I'm ready to feel them, right? The leader up the front talking about it. But this is, this is the end goal of what it means to follow Jesus, to have a character that, that follows after him. So, Got your Bible? Open it up. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 9. All right. The reason I left you in Crete, this is Paul the Apostle speaking to Titus, his ministry protege, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. What was unfinished, Paul? Well, you need to appoint elders in every town. You need to appoint leaders over the church because this is an important part of the church being healthy and flourishing. In verse 5 and 6, you get this language of elder. Verse 7, the language shifts and it starts to become an overseer. Two different Greek words that are referring to the same office but emphasizing different things. An elder, literally an old person. But in this case, someone who is wise in the way of Jesus. That's, that's the kind of person that's being installed here as a leader over the church. An overseer, the, the language here is like of a guardianship, of like a supervisory role. They have a responsibility to manage the household of God and to steward the message that they've received from Jesus to Paul to them. Because it's so essential that in the generations to follow, the gospel doesn't get watered down and Jesus doesn't get thrown out because he is the hope of the world, Right? Elder, overseer, come together. That's who we're appointing as Titus is given this responsibility by Paul. What is it truly that they do? Well, you get this beautiful moment in Acts, which is the story of the early church. Paul the apostle who wrote this letter, he's, he's aware that he is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be imprisoned. He's probably never going to see his dearest friends ever again. And so he sits down with them, the Ephesian elders, and he just kind of gives them the final words. You imagine someone you love dearly, that the, you know it's your last conversation. What would you say? Well, there's a lot of things that Paul says, but one, come up on the screen, is from Acts chapter 20, verse 29. It says this, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. What does it mean to be an elder or an overseer? It is to shepherd the flock of God, the church, which was bought with the blood of Jesus? Is there anything more precious than bought with the infinite worth of the Son of God who died for them? Absolutely not. It's an incredible calling, and yet it's so countercultural. What is leadership today? Achieve, perform, get the numbers that are required, get the results that everyone can look to. What's your, what's, what's your objective as a Christian leader? Look after the sheep. Know their names. Make sure they don't get too muddy and gross. Make sure none of them fall into a pit and die. Keep them alive, right? That's, that's the calling of a Christian leader. They're called to be shepherds over the church of God. 
Now, different denominations and different churches have different language to describe this. In, in the Anglican church, which you're sitting in right now, we have the rector, who's kind of like over the church, but then there's the wardens and the parish council and then the assistant pastor. It all gets a bit confusing, but the role is there. It's, it's of leading and shepherding the flock of God. You go to the Presbyterian church, they use the language of elders. You go to a Pentecostal church or a Baptist church, lots of different language. But the biblical model rings true. There ought to be people who have been set aside for this incredibly weighty task of caring for the church, of looking after the flock of God. Now, I want to step into some controversial territory, okay? I want to touch on who is called to fill the office of eldership, males males or females, right? And I want to do this because I think in this room right now, we have a very, very big diversity of opinions. There will be some here who hold strongly to say, only men should have this leadership position. And then there are going to be others in this room who are just as strong and say, it's absolutely misogynistic to say that, ought to be men and women. And I want to to open this up because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united in his blood, and the same gospel has saved us. And we don't want to allow room for division. We don't want to allow Satan a foothold. We want to remain united. And I think this is something that we can discuss and, and, and get our claws into. Now, I don't have enough time at all to try and give you the full picture and the many different perspectives and iterations of different opinions. But I just want to give you the snapshot, and then I'll send you some resources in the week if you want to do some reading and thinking and talking. But I think it's worthwhile. Firstly, the, the male-only eldership position. It, it understands theologically from Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation that God created man and woman completely, perfectly equal in worth, but with a difference, and therefore a difference in their role within the church. And you read through the Scriptures and you'll see that difference, but particularly when it comes to the New Testament church, you come to 1 Timothy 2, Paul, similar letter to this, Paul writing to Timothy, and he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And so reading that at its, at its plainest and understanding that this is Scripture, that is a command that's taken to norm the life of the church. 1 Timothy 3, the chapter immediately afterward, begins to speak about eldership. And so we start with the assumption that women do not teach or have authority over men. So therefore, this eldership role is restricted to men. You come to Titus and other passages like this that speak about leadership in the church. And that's the assumption because we've started with principles and we've started with theology. That's one package of male-only eldership. The other side of allowing male and female to be elders or leaders in the church is, and there's lots of different iterations of this, but I want to be clear, is not just those liberals who have thrown out the Bible, but there are a Bible-believing, faithful Christians who have, have read the Scriptures faithfully and closely and have come to a different position. They've read from Genesis to Revelation and understood, yes, that God made male and female different, and yet, in that complementarity, there is not a hierarchy of leadership. Um, when it comes to the fall in Genesis 3, it speaks about the woman seeking to have, um, to grasp at the, the um, oh, I should find the language, but to, to overthrow the, the authority of the male. And it's this, this, this aspect of the sin-broken world and the judgment of God. And so this position would argue, therefore, that hierarchy is not a God-ordained reality, but actually an outcome of the fall. And so when we come into the New Testament, and as we read through the role of men and women of the Bible, that's the dynamic that we're seeing. And so we come to 1 Timothy 2, and it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And it's understood to be through context and the specific language used, to not necessarily being a universal command for all women in the church, but perhaps speaking to a particular type of teaching that was the deposit of the apostles, or perhaps is not referring to um, 
a, a universal command, but a specific command to the Ephesian church, which is on view in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, as you see there's false teachers and it's connecting it in chapter 2. So therefore, the eldership in chapter 3 isn't necessarily restricted to men, but could be men and women. That's a lot of information, right? But that's the snapshot. The reason I give it to you is not to convince you either way or even to tell you what I think, but to say we can be united around Jesus, we can hold to the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, and we can disagree on these things and be believers in Christ together. I'd love to talk more after the service. I'd love to hear what you think, and I will send out some things for us to keep on thinking about it. But the reason I bring it up is because we will have different opinions, and I think on both sides we need to do some really hard work. On the male-only eldership side, it is absolutely essential that when we make the decision that women cannot preach or teach or have senior leadership in the church, that we are so careful to empower the gifting of women and to, to really do the hard work to go, what is the role and calling of women in the church? Because if we have not done that hard work, we've, we've not just listened to a, a passage of Scripture, we've oppressed more than 50% of the church from fulfilling their calling. We cannot be lazy. We have to work that out. But then on the other side, the male and female, both as eldership, the tendency is to blur the distinction of men and women and to completely do away with any sense of complementarity. And the church is hamstrung by that fact that men and women are different. And and in fact, if there were to be women in eldership and men in eldership, that would still take the shape of the differences in which God has made them. And so again, there needs to be this hard work of understanding how does the church, as God has called it to be, live out its function of, of complementary men and women who serve one another. So, I guess I'm calling us to think scripturally, to think difficultly, and to come to a place where we are really trying our best to obey God and to see the church flourish as God has called it to. And so, it sounds like a big aside, but I think it's a really important thing, especially in this day and age where Christians are seen as oppressive for for putting women in the corner and not allowing them to thrive in their gifting. Regardless, we obey scripture. We take our, our, our direction from God, and so we need to do that hard work. But with that aside, we come to the center of this passage, and that is what is truly Christian leadership. It's all about character. It's all about character. Character is king. Character is king. You know, you could think of a million things that that pastors or church leaders do or should do. You know, I often get emails about what I have done well or emails about things that people really think I should have been doing. And I think if we took down every person wrote a role description for a pastor, we'd cover everything, right? So what is it that's so important about Christian leadership? Strip away all the doing and come back to who are you? Who are you as someone who has seen Jesus, been forgiven by his grace and is seeking to live after him with everything that you are, who is your character? And I want to ask you that question. If you're someone who, who knows God, who's been saved by Christ, who are you? How are you living your life? Because when it comes to leadership, the bar is that character is essential. It is the absolute key. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize this. When I was younger, I would always point to those incredible moments as the most formative for who I became the incredible conference where that person gave an incredible talk that just was, it just impacted me so much. Or an experience I had with the Lord over here that was just an absolute godsend at an important time in my life. And they were really important moments. But if you actually look closely at who is Nick Wood, the, the things that shaped me most were very ordinary and were just really just average people. 
I think of high school Nick who'd just come to faith, trying to work out what it means to be a believer, and his, his parents wouldn't drive him to church. Mum, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I forgive you. It's okay, okay? It's all right. But my youth leader, Tuscan, he would come and he'd pick me up every single Sunday, and we'd go and buy a kebab. You'd put garlic and chili sauce on it because there are no other options. And we went and sat in the park and we read the Bible and he discipled me. We literally did just walk through bits of the Bible. It wasn't anything impressive or, or spectacular, but I can trace so much of who I am to those hour-long moments with kebabs in the park, including my high cholesterol and my imminent death. You know, those things all come together in one. <laughs> I think of in my 20s, a guy at my old church who just walked alongside me as he did ministry in a school and said, hey, do you want to come run some Bible studies? Do you want to come over for dinner and hang out with me and my wife? And, and I learned what it meant to be a man who had a, a godly Christian marriage just by watching him and being in his room, not because he was particularly impressive or incredible, I think he is, but simply because I got the opportunity to see his character up close. It wasn't just a mask or a face that he put on to impress people. He, he pulled away the curtain and let me see the dark stuff too. And that's when I saw this is legit. And this is who I should be. And so if you read through Titus 1, 5 to 9, you have a look at all of these characteristics. They're not particularly extraordinary or incredible. Like if you were trying to design the world's best leader, some of these things might be on there, but they'd probably just be the baseline. Now, there's something more serious going on here. And that is that the Christian mold of leadership and the Christian mold of greatness is entirely different to that of this world. Jesus had the power of the infinite God. He made all things and he held everything together even while he was dying on that cross. And it says that he chose to consider that stuff nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. Why do Christian leaders seem to be falling like flies? Perhaps it's because we've lost the fact that we're meant to be servants. That character, who we are, matters more than what we do. Now, there, are, there are, is a word here that gets repeated twice. It's really important. So you go, verse 6, an elder must be blameless. Verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. This is sort of the banner that sits over all the other characteristics that define what it means to be a Christian leader. And it's a really important word, this word blameless. Um, and don't be fooled, this is not a word denoting perfection. There's two words that, that Paul could have chosen to describe this idea of blamelessness. One which would have been translated more closely as without blemish or pure or holy. And it's, that's the picture of the church, you know, at the end of all time, face to face with the Lord, splendid in all of its holiness, it is without blemish. It is pure, it is perfect. That's not what he's got going on here. Whew. You don't need perfect leaders. You won't have perfect leaders this side of heaven. But the word blameless here is more about without accusation or without... Um, without criticism or attack. It's this idea that if you were to hold up someone's life and to look at it just as it is, as they leave it, live it out in every sphere, there would not be a place where you can throw stones or, or convict them of doing the wrong thing because they're living with integrity. They're not perfect, but they're walking closely with the Lord as well as they can in the way that Jesus has set out for them. So I want, if you don't hear anything else as we look at all of these characteristics, your leaders should be people of integrity. What they preach, what they say is important, should be reflected in every part of their life. And if you see hypocrisy and you see a mismatch between the gospel and the, the behavior of your leaders, 
that is a serious problem and ought to be called out. It really should. And so, so that's really the banner that hangs over all of this. The, the two sections of blameless. The first one is the, the elder is called to be blameless in their family life. The second one is that they're to be blameless in their hidden life or their personal life or their personal conduct. So firstly, let's look at the, the, the family life. Verse 6 says, An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So this is saying as... A leader is effectively like the manager or the head of God's household. The way that they function in their family is a direct representation of their ability or their their integrity in being able to lead the people of God. This is not saying that Christian leaders have to be married. Let's be clear on that. 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul writing this letter, he talks about, I wish everyone else could be single like me because I don't have to worry about them wife and kids at home. I just go hard for the Lord, right? That's kind of his approach. He says, I wish everyone could go and just do what I'm doing. He, he was a Christian leader. He was an elder in so many ways, and yet he was single. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is if you want to see what someone truly is like, open up their front door and watch them in their family life. When they come home from a really long, crappy day at work, how do they speak to their wife or their husband? When you, when you see their kids, how, how does he or she talk to them? How does he or she, you know, intentionally raise them and grow them? That's why I think it talks about being faithful to your husband or your wife, sorry. Um, it's talking about this sense of, of committed faithfulness in the privacy of your home. Because if you can't get that right, in what way could you ever get it right in the church? And then when it's talking about children, it's not saying that if you have an unbelieving child at any point, therefore you can't be a leader. If that was the case, I think we would have lost a couple archbishops at some point. What I think this is referring to is in the process of your kids growing up, we know that only God can give faith. But in our influence over them, we get to raise them and disciple them to become believers. We get to influence them and show them that Jesus is the best way. And it's saying as we have that responsibility, we should see that in, their, in our kids And if we're not seeing that, perhaps we've missed or abdicated the responsibility that we have. Of course, as we approach adulthood, it's on us. We get to make the call about whether we're going to take on the faith of our our parents and the way that we were raised. But as far as the parents and their influence over their children, do you see a man or a woman who is cultivating a gospel-shaped home? That's what we ought to be seeing. There should be a blamelessness of of following Jesus all the way through their, their house. And then we move on from the house to just the hidden life, the personal life. Verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. And then starts to speak about all of these different characteristics. There are five do nots and six do's. We're going to race on real quickly. But these effectively, I think, paint a picture of who Jesus is in his leadership and who he is as a man and calls Christians, not just leaders, you as well. To, to model ourselves after him in that way. So the five do nots, I've got them up on the screen, my summary words for them. The first one, pride. They're called to not be overbearing. Someone who need, feels that need to exert themselves over other people, to try and like puff themselves up and prove that they're worthwhile by beating other people around, using their influence to show someone why they're important. It can't be that way. Because look at Jesus, the almighty God who was willing to die for you? What Christian leader who's really seen Jesus would act like that? Your temper, 
It says, not quick-tempered. What kind of person could lead the flock of God as a, as a gentle shepherd who reacts at every little thing with a quick temper of anger of like, oh my gosh, you're an idiot. You stuffed it up again. Like that's not the picture of Christian leadership. It's of patience, of walking with the person even when they make mistakes because our goal is to present them pure and blameless before the Lord on the day of Christ. There's no place for temper. There's drink, not given to drunkenness. Um, in Ephesians, it talks about not being filled with too much wine so that we might be drunk, but being filled with the Spirit. We need to be a people who are sober and filled with the Spirit, not the spirits. Anyone? Anyone? Terrible, terrible, I know. There's, <laughs> there's a sense that if we're going to be in, in tune with the Spirit of God and doing the work of God, we can't be a people who are rolling around in drunkenness. Power, it says not violent. Um, again, you look at Jesus and He is strong, but he is always gentle. And a Christian leader cannot be violent, wielding their power in a way that harms others, but power ought to be wielded in, in a way of service and of love and kindness. Money, I can think of nothing less Christ-life than using your Christian leadership to increase your own wealth, right? <laughs> Jesus took on the nature of a servant, emptied himself, right? There is no place for unhealthy gain, dishonest gain. So those are the do nots. And again, I'm going to read them really quickly. And I don't want you to put them out there on the leaders that you know. I want you to think about your own soul. Do you have pride? Are you quick-tempered? Is there potentially too much alcohol or drugs in your life? Do you use your power to harm? And is your heart chasing after money over all else? Again, this is the expectation of a leader. But a leader is embodying these things because they're trying to lead people in the same way of Jesus. Those are the do-nots. The do's, there are six of them, but I've grouped them down to four just to make it a little simpler. Firstly, hospitality. Um, you might be thinking of a dinner party. Of you just got to open your home and have people around all the time. Some pastors do that incredibly, and I love that. But that's not what is necessarily going on here. The word hospitality means the love of the stranger. It's this sense of opening your home in a way that doesn't just prioritize those who you already like and who are easy to spend time with, but in the same way that Jesus reaches out to those who have offended him and, and those who are far away, we reach out to those of all sorts. That's, that's what you should see in leadership, a, a hospitality, a love of a stranger. It should look like an open home, but it should look so much more than that in, in a love for those who are unlike us. There's the lover of good. We're in the year of goodness, so of course it's going to come up in Titus. But your, your leaders should be people who are generous, who are charitable, who are looking for opportunities to, to do good things. They're not so preoccupied by their to-do list or the tasks that are before them. Instead, they recognize that like Jesus, the interruptions in life are often actually the substance of life. And the people who come across you in your everyday are often actually the people that God would have you give yourself to. We need to be doers of good. Now, I've grouped upright and holy together because upright or righteous sort of speaks to the way that we are dealing with others, whereas holiness speaks to our relationship with God. And so it's this sense in which our, our character ought to be one of uprightness in the way that we do all of our relationships with other people, and yet everything of ourselves as we relate to the holy God ought to be also of holiness. If you see leaders, Christian leaders who are living in unholiness, or who are dealing with people in a way that's not upright, that's not on because it's not the way of Jesus. And lastly, self-controlled, it comes a little bit earlier, but disciplined is the last one. 
And I think this is on purpose because really this idea of self-mastery encapsulates all of it. There's a reason self-control is a fruit of the Spirit because in ourselves we really have no ability to be the people that we want to be. But when Christ sets us free, we have the chance to live differently. And so to be able to be hospitable and to love good and to not drink too much wine and to look after people and to do all these things, you need to have control over yourself. You can't just go with the flow of anything you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it. And again, that impulsive, self-centered person should not be a leader. And so all of these traits are really quite ordinary, but when you put them all together, it's kind of like, wow, it seems like a pretty tall order. It's actually quite a lot. And that's the point because we are called to be a people who have met Jesus, but who have been changed by Jesus. And so again, I want to ask you, as someone who's met Jesus, have you been changed by Jesus? Are you hospitable? Do you love the stranger? Do you love people who aren't like you? Are you a lover of good? Are you willing to give of yourself to other people? Are you consumed with your own things? Are you upright in the way you deal with people? Are you holy in the way that you approach God? And are you self-controlled? Are you living according to your flesh? Or are you living in the pattern of the Spirit? That's really what I think Paul is getting at, that these leaders, and in effect, we'll get to it in a minute, all of us, need to live lives of integrity. What is the greatest obstacle to people coming into a church or listening to a Christian talk about Jesus? It's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. If Jesus truly is the Lord of the world who died to bring salvation to all and transforms life and gives a life that is the greatest life that you could ever live, we need to see a change. And it's not that we try and force that, but it's that as we come closer to Him, that defines us and it needs to. And so this is where we get to verse 9, and this is where we'll, we'll wrap up quickly, don't worry. This is where I would suggest that leaders are first followers. They're not some separate class sitting off in the corner di dictating the ways of the church as if they're different and the people who follow God in the church are doing another thing. Leadership is really just walking first and calling others to follow you. Look with verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There's this sense of guarding the gospel and making sure that it's never unsullied or polluted. But in reality, all of those characteristics are a person who's been changed by the trustworthy message. So if the leader's job is to encourage others in the trustworthy message, but to be a leader, you need to embody the trustworthy message, they're just first followers. They're just walking in front of you saying, come with me. I've tasted that Jesus is good and it's worth it. Come, leave everything else behind. It's, it's, you will find rest for your souls. You will find a life that's worth living. And so this is really, at the end of the day, the center of it all. Leaders and every believer really ought to have the gospel as the absolute center of everything that we are. And if we, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, and that's not true, we've got a mismatch. And we'll start to see those things become cracks in our character. We'll start to see things in ourselves that don't resemble Jesus, because truly, we don't actually have Jesus at the center. We don't have the trustworthy message as the center of who we are. So, character is king. Leadership, not a very inspiring message, but it's essential, and not just for me, it's for you. 
If you want to follow Jesus, we need to be a people who cultivate a life that aligns with Christ. So I got three quick things to help us try and cultivate character in a way that aligns our life with Christ. So the first one is, we need to live our actual life in relationship with Jesus. Sounds normal. Sounds easy. Let me explain. We need to live our actual life with Jesus, not just like the life that we wish we had, not just the people that we wish we were. We need to stop keeping Jesus at an arm's length where, yes, we do occasionally pray, we read our Bible on the train to work sometimes and we go to church, but we need to draw Jesus close and allow him to come in and reveal to him all of the cracks and the flaws in our character. Because if we keep him at a distance, we fool ourselves into thinking that we're actually better than we are. You draw him in close as he calls us to walk closely with him. We can't help but be seeing in him this beautiful person that we are currently not embodying. And it's in that proximity that transformation happens. 2 Corinthians 3 says, as we behold Christ, we contemplate the glory of Christ, that's when we're transformed. We need to be close with him. In Colossians 3, it says, put off the old self, put on the new self. That's not generic. You need to know what the old self of you is to be able to put on the new self of what you ought to look like as you follow Jesus. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We love the fruit of the Spirit, but we need to actually put to death the flesh in us, the specific sin and patterns and behaviors that we are defined by, and put them aside, and then be cultivating the fruit of the Spirit as He changes us specifically into who we're meant to be. So we need to live our actual life closely with Jesus. The second, I already touched on it, we need to live every single day with rhythms of the gospel. Now, I don't want to put like a legalistic rule down as a church, like you got to do this Bible reading plan every day or anything like that. But how could we possibly expect to have lives that start to resemble Jesus when the gospel is just in the background of who we are rather than at the center of who we are? A character doesn't come in explosive moments. You can't do three big things in your life and suddenly you're an amazing person. It's, it's a small deposit every single day that contributes to a bank balance that looks like character life of Christ. I like to think of it as a headland. This comes up all the time because I think it's so helpful. How did that headland become that shape? It didn't happen because a storm came in and zapped a bunch of rocks off. It didn't happen from some freak event. It happened day after day, year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia as wind and waves day in and day out had their effect upon it. And that's you. You cannot be changed and transformed into the image of Christ if you don't have the wind and the waves of the gospel just coming across you every single day. Where are your rhythms in your spiritual life? How do you prize the gospel as the center of who you are? How do you preach to yourself that your identity is not in what you do or who you think you are, but in who Jesus says you are? We have to have those things as the bedrock of our life. And lastly, we need each other i got a lot of blind spots in my life that I've had some really great brothers and sisters be like, hey, Nick, you kind of suck at this. And, and that's a gift, right? Because there are things in my life that I'm not living right or correctly. I'm not even aware of it. And I need a brother or a sister to come alongside me and point that out. I think we, we like friendship. I don't think we like vulnerability. As we kick off Connect Groups this year, that should really be a real important part, that we're not just seeking to make some friends and do a Bible study. We're looking to, to be, get so vulnerable that we can speak into each other's lives. 
that we can push after Jesus together. There should be accountability, the occasional confession of, man, I really stuffed up this week. Maybe even a rebuke as you see something in another person. We need each other. That's why we're called the body of Christ. We're not whole unless we have each other, all built up to the head that is Jesus. So we've got a whole picture of leadership, but it's so much more than that. It's a reorienting of how we approach life. It's not about impressive gifting, skill, success. At the end of the day, it's seeing Jesus and being transformed by Jesus and living a life after Jesus. That has to be the center of all of it. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that God would do that. We'll keep moving. Almighty Father, you are so patient, you're so tender, you're so kind, because there's nothing in us deserving of your love, and yet you look at us and you, you choose to love us. Lord Jesus, it's incredible to consider that your leadership meant leaving your throne in heaven and stepping into this world to die, but that's, that's who you are, because you love us. Lord, please, Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you transform us by that message of the gospel? Would you even right now reveal to us those things that are a part of our life that shouldn't be there? Would you convict us? Would you set us free? Would you replace our sin with the fruit of the Spirit? Would you be molding us more and more like Jesus? Lord, we pray that for our leaders in this church and in the church just generally, that that we would be more and more captivated by Christ and who he's calling us to be than anything else that this world might set before us. Lord, thank you that you don't just save us and leave us, but you fill us with your spirit and you promise that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. So please, God, would you be with us and would you transform us? Amen.